Let me get this started. Uh, yeah, so we're calling this sermon series The Upside Down Kingdom, and I hope that it will make sense to you as we work through this. I'm really excited about this. Um, next week, we're going to have somebody from Tom's River here to uh, be here and to do sermon number two, so don't miss that. It's going to be great. So if you uh, have Bibles with you, please open up to Matthew chapter 5. We have a very small text this morning, um, but not so small because we will be talking about the entirety of the Bible in a half hour. So really the whole Bible is our text this morning, and you will see we are reading um, just the first couple of verses in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, the word of the Lord, seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and we're going to stop right there. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, really speak to your word this morning as we talk about your story, talk about the story of Scripture and what led up to this point. Please uh, just give us the ears to hear you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. Amen. The goal of this uh, sermon series is to inform our Christian life. Um, church planting in the 21st century uh, is going to be one of mission, one of active living, one of um, uh, getting closer to Christ as we are extending the good news of him to our neighbors and to our communities and to those surrounding us as we are loving God and loving our neighbor. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to give us essentially a blueprint for how this looks, and we'll get into that as we dive in. But before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, I have to build a foundation for us, uh, a foundation that we must have in order to understand what is going on in the following chapters. Uh, The sermon comes early in the Gospel of Matthew, um, and it can't be read in isolation from the earlier portions of the book itself, but it also cannot be read in isolation from the Bible, for the whole biblical story itself. There's many ways to sum up the scriptures. The story is long, it's complex, and it's beautiful. It describes the human condition and its remedies. It is proved to be transcultural, transgenerational. It is um, all over every single continent. It has found revelance, uh, uh, revelance in, in all cultures. But when Jesus shows up and he sits down in Matthew, as he recalls it, and begins teaching, we need to ask the question, well, how did the story get here? There's a lot of Bible before this, and Matthew is writing in such a way that we must answer that question. He's writing in such a way that is an effort essentially to bring your entire Old Testament into a sort of conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount, in this gospel, in the broader whole. So we need to first consider this as we start. The human beings, we were never intended to be completely and utterly free. Our modern times values freedom so much that freedom has become an end to itself. Freedom of choice, freedom of belief, freedom of lifestyle, and on and on. Freedom has become a virtue in and of itself. And to some degree, God did create us to be free, but in a limited fashion. We were never created to be completely free humans. From day one, our freedom as humans were limited. Limits to remind us that God himself is truly sovereign, truly God, and is truly king. He offers us life as was shown through the availability of the tree of life, yet restricted some of reality from us and created us in such a manner that we were supposed to be dependent on God through faith. 
This was shown in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God created us with the experience of freedom, yet in our human nature, he created us to be dependent on him as we exercise our free will. He told Adam and Eve, go and eat freely of the garden, the tree of life. It's all yours, yet there is something that is not yours. You are free, but you are not completely free. But God is the most free being in the world. God can truly do as he pleases. He doesn't need restrictions. This is because he is holy, he is pure, he is good, he is righteous, he is true. It is impossible for God to do evil. Therefore, he can freely do as he pleases without the need for any limits. But humans were not created that way. But we sure wish we were, right? We wanted to share in God's freedoms without restrictions, without limits. We wanted to cast off the shackles of his kingship. Take on his duties, deciding what is true and good for ourselves, making our own rules for living, and take that impossible responsibility on our own shoulders. Now, one major aspect of how we can define the Christian idea of sin is this. Sin is the exercising of complete freedom of will as if you are God yourself and do not need any limits with your freedom. Doing what you please, whatever makes you happy, will eventually lead to you wrecking your life. It will lead to the unraveling of social order as it is inside of a nation. It will even lead to things like sexual chaos without restrictions as we are witnessing today and on among other things. It's because you and I were created to need a king. We need a leader. We need limits. We need boundaries. But Adam and Eve usurped those boundaries, and they sinned against God. Their heart and our heart have now been, by nature, completely bent towards the inclination of wanting to be our own king and our own leader, and in essence, our own God. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is really a story that you and I can relate to in every way. It's a story of humans who keep wanting to do as they want to do and to have complete freedom to rule themselves and realize that they can't but they still try anyway. When we introduce the effort of humans living in complete freedom in the world, that humans can be free from God to live as they please, the curse of death was introduced. Violence entered our story. Life began being taken away. Self-preservation was introduced at whatever cost was necessary, even at the murdering of our own brother, as we know in Cain and Abel's story. It has marred our story ever since. But God promised that a person would come one day um, through Eve's line, her children, that would bring justice to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, justice to the serpent's family and his offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman, said God, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. That became the hope of every human from day one, the hope of this coming of this person to reverse all things and make wrongs right through justice against the one who tempted us. So the Old Testament, the cycles of sin and our exercising of our complete freedom continually led to our own destruction. Israel was always looking for this person promised by God to help repair our sorry condition. Moses came along. He led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God worked miracles and amazing feats through him. He gave Moses a new law, calling him to ascend a mountain called Sinai, metaphorically going up to God, to receive a divinely given law, as told in Exodus 19. Now keep that mountain in your mind. 
He gave Moses directions for the building of the tabernacle, which brings God down to earth, closer to humans, right? Maybe, just maybe, this was the prophesied person to help bring us closer to God. Maybe this would be the person to bring a swift end to sin, to the serpent's family, and evil could be eradicated. When the law was given in the Old Testament, it has often been summarized with the idea of externals and behaviors only. But Moses was really writing a law that was also focused on the heart. This was diagnosed from the very beginning that our hearts needed fixing. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, and Moses in Deuteronomy 10 even says, but your heart needs to be circumcised. Circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. The law pointed out something very crucial. The problem of Israel was internal. It was not only external, primarily internal. Moses, though, he shared in this internal problem himself. He also exercised his freedom to do as he pleased numerous times in his life. He was a murderer. He was also a usurper of God numerous times in the wilderness. The fact that Moses not, uh, proved not to be the final one who would bring justice and lead God's people was proven upon his death, right? Um, sure enough, he died. Israel's story continued on. Uh, chosen people continued, but they were still a broken people. Within a few centuries, Israel was dwelling in the promised land. We had this awful strings of stories in the book of Judges where there is moral and there is spiritual chaos. And there's a phrase repeated throughout the book of Judges that says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Remarkable how that seems to be true even today. So there's the freedom piece was surfaced again. They needed a king. They were too free. They, they were, we were created to live beneath God and his kingdom in Eden, right? And we will not flourish, you and I, and every human being in this world until we are back beneath his kingship. But there's an obstacle, says Moses in Deuteronomy, and has shown the book of Judges, that internal problem, that proclivity to make ourselves God and to do what we want to do. It's natural desire to rebel against him. But nevertheless, the Old Testament continues. God is a tutor for humankind. He gives Israel finally this king. His name is David. He's the one after God's own heart. God had made a covenant with him, saying that his house and his kingdom shall be sure forever and ever. And his throne will be established forever. So finally, here we are. Maybe this is the one to reverse all wrongs. Maybe this is the king that we're missing. Maybe he's finally it. But sure enough, David himself proved to be an imperfect person murdering and sleeping with other men's wives after getting them pregnant. His children proved to be great material for Jerry Springer show, just doing awful, horrendous things to one another. David's children took up the kingship after David died, and they went through some of the same cycles. Some were close to God, and then some drifted away, mostly many of his kingly line after him, who were king over Israel. They acted according to their own desires and sought their own freedom. Eventually, this kingdom of Israel was split in two. And after centuries, this kingdom kept shrinking and diminishing in their prosperity and even were exiled out of the land, bringing an end to this kingdom. Yet the promises remain. Where is this new king? Where is this promised kingdom? Where is this person coming to get rid of sin and evil, to bring justice? Where, what is this? The situation seemed beyond repair. 
and the human condition was still irrecoverably bent towards sin. In the latter half of this kingdom period, we have a very important figure rise up, and his name was Isaiah. He wrote one of the most beautifully written books in human history, containing some of the most beautiful poetry, most memorable words ever written. Among many things, he had to say, um, he had all this stuff was being spoken to, this corrupt Israelites in his day, who were languishing beneath their sin. And, um, it, it, and he was sitting on this foundations of all these promises, right? And with great hope and with great longing, Isaiah pins these all too familiar words for us. He says this, seven verses. He says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Because in the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, that's the northern part of Israel, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And here comes Christmas time, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh will do this. Not long after those words were written, it seemed maybe the hope is coming, but Judah was invaded, the temple destroyed, and the kingdom was brought to an end. And they were exiled out of the land. Exiled just like we were out of the Garden of Eden. Where is this king? Where is this forever kingdom? Where is this child? Seventy years passed. The Israelites eventually come back to Israel. Right? They rebuild these walls, but they're scraping by. They're surrounded by enemies. They're not independent. There's another king over them. They're barely making it. They have all these promises, but the hope lingered on as they looked around them at this old busted up ruined city trying to rebuild it, yearning for salvation, yearning for the son of David to reappear, to rule them, and to lead them, and to save them. And centuries kept going by. The world changed rapidly. A young pupil of Aristotle named Alexander, who became known as Alexander the Great, took a sword and laid waste to everything in his path before he was 30 years old. And then he died. The Romans took up, took over all those lands, became the mighty Roman Empire. In the midst of this massive world and all the changes that came along with it, a little piece of land, no, longer this, no larger than the size of New Jersey, lied on the outskirts of it all being pushed back and forth like a pawn between all these great world power changes. A little nation, seemingly officially outside of history, no longer relevant to anything important. Perhaps the prophets were wrong. Perhaps the salvation that was intended not just for them, but for the world was not true. For no tiny nation like Israel could ever be as mighty and influential as this new Roman Empire. Then suddenly something happened to this tiny province some 400 years since the last prophet uttered a word in Israel. A child was born in Bethlehem. A young woman became pregnant, a woman who had not been with a man who was not married. And her fiancé wanted to divorce her, as was just to do. You heard the story a thousand times, but listen to the words that were given that we hear at Christmas time. If you're in our you know, context in America, you hear this stuff every year. But read carefully these familiar words. Listen to these familiar words. 
When Joseph was ready to leave Mary, as I think any man would have wanted to do, when his wife says, hey, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You're like, yeah, I'm piecing out of this one. And an angel appears and says, Joseph, son of David, take her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then foreigners arrive from distant lands bearing gifts, looking for this new king of the Jews, right? And this will be apparently a remarkable child. Mary and Joseph's son Jesus, many decades later, he was baptized. And he was sent into the wilderness to experience something that was all too familiar in Israel's story throughout the Old Testament. He had a direct confrontation with Satan himself. And he was tempted by Satan, the serpent. Adam and Eve had failed when this serpent approached them. Israel, after they were um, rescued from Egypt, spent 40 long years in the wilderness because of their continual failure and being tempted by Satan. And yet here is Jesus, 40 days in the desert, confronted by Satan with a series of temptations, yet, unlike all his predecessors, he prevails in victory. And now the stage seems to be set. A son of David has been born. It is time for the throne to be set back up, for this forever kingdom of David that the angel said would follow Jesus would be set up. He just survived temptations from Satan himself, something Israel could never do, but he does something very unexpected. I want you to try to see Jesus with new eyes and this story with new eyes. You would think that this new king would go running towards Jerusalem. That's the place to go. That's where the king of the time of Israel was living, beneath Caesar and Rome. And that's where his, his palace was. That's where the temple was. Jesus, that's the place you need to go if you're taking back this throne. But no, he goes to the outskirts of Israel, the northern portion where the Sea of Galilee was. There, lots of Jews and lots of non-Jews lived. It was a very insignificant place on the outskirts. The boondocks, right, in other words. But why? According to Matthew chapter 4, if you're still there, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up now Matthew chapter 4, in verse, beginning in verse 12 and 13 and 14, after John the Baptist was arrested, it says Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, where he grew up, he spent and lived, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the ter- territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew says this, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Galilee of Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Sound familiar? It was from that time on, Jesus began preaching a very distinct message to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls his first disciples. They drop everything. The family business. They leave their very families and become Jesus' disciples. And now, all right, so David's son of David, Jesus, he's, he's ready to go. He's going to announce the kingdom of heaven is here. It's time to pick up the swords and go to Jerusalem and set the throne up. But he does something else very unexpected. The unexpected things are going to be very common in the next couple of weeks as we read and hear what he taught. And not just hear what he taught, but what Jesus did. He starts traveling all around Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in this northern part of the country. And people from Galilee, from Syria, and various Roman cities right outside of Jerusalem began flocking to him. Because now he's healing people. He's healing people that that had diseases and paralytics and people possessed by demons and epileptics and people with various pains and aches. 
All of them are getting healed. The soon-to-be king of the Jews, the son of David, is healing people now. And not just the Jews from Israel, but foreigners from other lands, even the Roman enemies. And he gathers this large crowd for something special. But now imagine this. If you were among the crowd in that day, and you were diseased and paralyzed and had pains and aches and etc. and so forth, you didn't have any hope. There was no hospitals, no Medicare or welfare systems, no federal structures to ensure that you had shelter, that you had food to eat and clothing. No, these people would have been literally scraping by on whatever pennies their family had to give them, because surely they couldn't have had jobs, or they were beggars to get money from whatever gracious passerby could give them something. So the son of David, the first crowd that he gathers is a crowd full of sickly, hopeless people that have no importance or no influence in the land whatsoever. It would be equivalent to like the hospital in Brick here just completely emptying out all their patients and they show up for a service. That's the crowd that Jesus had. And that was the first crowd that he gathered in the Gospel of Matthew. And now we arrive at our text today. Matthew, as he tells this story, is doing something very intentional with the words and with his storytelling. After doing much research on this text, I think most scholars agree to this, that Matthew is trying to hearken our memory here to see what Jesus does next and to think back to ancient times in Israel's story. All Matthew is doing throughout these early chapters in his account of the gospel is making us think back to that story we just walked through. He's already quoted from it in chapters 1, 2, and 3 so many times. And he seems to be placing Jesus as the embodiment of not just random prophecies of people who lived centuries before. No, he's doing something bigger. He seems to say that Jesus is completing the story of Israel. That's what I mean. Matthew's going to have us see how all of Israel's story, all of their longings, all the promises, all the prophecies from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament is wrapped up in fulfillment, not in a group of people, not in some holy generation of Israelites, but rather it is wrapped up in a person, the child who was born, that son of Mary whose kingdom will have no end, that son of Mary who also dwelt in Egypt, just like Israel did while he was on the run from Herod, who also came back to the land of Israel, the son of Mary who had spent 40 days, although not years, in the wilderness like Israel but who didn't succumb to the serpent's temptations and who now is preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Old Testament story is finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And so now, in our verses, let's pick up on these verses in Matthew 5 as he begins um, this sermon to this crowd of um, just busted up people who had no hope and have no influence The people that if you were trying to become king, you probably wouldn't go and find other kinds of people. But Jesus seems to be wanting these people. And keep that in mind. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I've been to the Sea of Galilee. I've walked around the ocean. I've been on the Sea of Galilee. I can tell you there's little hills and some little cliffs. There's not mountains there. There's not a mountain in the way that you and I would think of a mountain. But Matthew says that Jesus saw these crowds, these poor beat up people who received all the bad hands in life of disease and sickness and physical infirmities. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain. Now Matthew is trying to make us think back to a very specific time in Israel's story. This is not the first time somebody climbed a mountain in the Bible to receive God's words or to give God's words. But this time there is a major difference. 
Moses climbed the mountain to get God's words to give them to Israel. He climbed the mountain to meet God. But Jesus climbs the mountain, and the crowds follow him, and then he sits down. Now, sitting down in those days before a great crowd was something that, was, that only those in great authority did. It almost speaks of a sort of finished work or an assumed authority that no one can challenge. To sit down before a large crowd is to be vulnerable. It's to assume that this crowd is not going to attack you and try to usurp your authority. Right? Kings do things like this. And Matthew said that he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai his words and his law. And as Israel was waiting for another prophet like Moses to ascend this mountain and to teach God's law again, Deuteronomy 19 says this, here Jesus is ascending a mountain, but instead of going to go and get God's words, the crowd comes to hear Jesus speak his words as he opens his mouth. That's a stunning claim of who Jesus really is. So why do I bother telling this story? I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to know exactly what Matthew was trying to present us with before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. As you read such a sermon, I want you to identify with the crowd who was sitting before Jesus. I want you to realize that this crowd, there were people who were acutely aware of their need. Those are the people Jesus gathered to himself. He didn't go knock on the mayor of Nazareth, right, and said, hey, you know, if you became my disciple and followed me, it would give me a lot of credibility. And then people say, oh, the mayor is following you. He must be important. You know, why don't you go do that? That's what politicians do, right? Oh, so-and-so endorsed me. So-and-so endorsed me. Well, Jesus' endorsement were much of the disease paralytics, right, that were on the streets begging. The society had said, get out of here. I don't want your, your, your icky diseases. Get out of here. Right? It's the only place for you is to be over there. And Jesus said, I want those people. I want their endorsement because they are aware of their need. He gathers the people that no one else wanted to gather. And those are the people who heard his message. What we are to expect in this Sermon on the Mount will be things completely and totally unexpected. Jesus came to a broken world, a world full of sin and of the curse, a world full of human beings who kept trying to live as if they were their own gods apart from himself. He came into such a world full of people whose hearts are the full, fully naturally bent towards sin and rebellion and self-glorification. And if you know the story, he was coming to take all of it on himself, to begin the choking of the engine in order to bring it to a stop, the engine of sin and the engine of death. In the meantime, as his disciples... Um, there are two very important things that we must know as a church that will help us prime ourselves to get ready to hear the words that will be found in this Sermon on the Mount. You can only really hear his words with a certain disposition within. The certain disposition is the one in which you know you do not belong to yourself. It is a certain disposition where you know that you are not your own God, that you are in need this disposition is really only available to us by the help of the Holy Spirit. Do we live our life like this? This is the hardest thing for us in such a prosperous age that we are so blessed to live in. And we also live in a nation that prides itself on independence and self-reliance. But are we willing to admit that indeed we cannot ultimately be self-reliant? Are we willing to admit our need to say that we need help, that we need saving, that we need a king? We need someone to lead us, to guide us, and to help us continually day to day and hour to hour. If you think 
You only need this Messiah, this King, in some parts of your life, but in other parts you have it under control. The words that follow in the oncoming months in this Sermon on the Mount will simply not make sense to you, and it may even cause an offense in you. The Sermon on the Mount is peculiar in the sense that it is a sermon that has a double-edged message. It is a vision. It's a vision of a heavenly life to be lived in a broken world. A life that will seem to be nearly impossible, and in some ways, it will be. Yet, it is a life that Jesus asked his disciples to actually do. As the final paragraph in the sermon shows, we are asked, as his disciples, to build our home not on the sand of our own way of life, but on the rock of his word that he just told us. The vision of the heavenly life on earth, in earth encircled around the famous Lord's Prayer is completely upside down to how you may think of it, to how you could ever imagine what life is supposed to be like. Knowing that Jesus' world was massively influenced by Greek culture, he picks up on certain traditions of wisdom of living that leads to human flourishing and kind of mimics the form, and especially the Beatitudes. That's why it's an interesting way it's set up. He's trying to thus join in on the proverbial wisdom giving of the day by giving us heavenly wisdom on the life well lived in his kingdom. But the big difference is that his message wasn't just a life well lived. It is so much more than that. It is the very characteristics of a restored, saved people living as pilgrims in the world with a new orientation towards their new king, and it's radical. So like Jesus, we can expect something to happen with this new reorientation as we flourish in this new kingdom, that the world may not appreciate it. And you may even find yourself rubbing up against all the world's values. You may even find yourself swimming upstream, being radically misunderstood by all, yet fueled with love, we're being asked by Christ to do so. At what cost? At the expense of ourselves, all for the glory of God, so that they may know the hope of Christ. As we close, a few things I want to ask you. The message of salvation through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for our sins brings about this needed reorientation we are speaking of. Upon the gift of faith, we are rescued and restored to a new identity beneath a new Lord. That of being Christ Jesus. That of being justified and brought into the right before God. And we are called to rely on this new God-given acceptance through Christ for all of our hope, day to day, hour by hour, for all of our motivations for living. What does that life look like if you were to live accordingly? That's the vision of the Sermon on the Mount. What keeps you from relying on this reality after faith? That's the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you willing to live your life in Christ at the expense of yourself? Are you willing to embrace that your life does not belong to you? Are you willing to embrace that Jesus has completely and utter authority in your life and in this world to take whatever he may, to give whatever he may, to ask you and to place yourself even in harm's way for the sake of his great name being glorified in this world, for the cause of his gospel to go forth. Everything in his kingdom is upside down. To climb the ladder in his kingdom is really to be climbing a ladder upside down. He sat down on this mountain to preach this amazing sermon, but in the very final paragraph of Matthew, knowing Matthew's very intelligent and intentional structure of the book as a literary piece of art, one more time later in the book, it says that Jesus climbed a mountain. The same place 
that he gave the Sermon on the Mount is mentioned once more. And once more his disciples came to him. And then he spoke another sermon. It was a fast. It was a quick sermon. The king in his glorified and resurrected state, having accomplished all that was to be accomplished. In Matthew 28, we've heard this numerous times here. This is what happens. The very end of the book, the last paragraph. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. To Galilee. To the mountain where Jesus had directed them. The mountain reappears. Galilee's back. They're back in the same spot. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said this, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How many times have we maybe heard these words in this church, but not listened to them? He says, all authority is mine. It is given to me. If you are my disciple, I am your king. Go therefore and go make more disciples. Because beneath me, humanity will flourish. Beneath me, you will learn what it means to be a human being. Beneath me, you will find salvation and hope. And your longings will be satisfied. That is why we are studying the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is trying to connect these two dots. The disciples of the resurrected Lord are to carry out the Great Commission by the way of life that was shown on the Sermon on the Mount. And I pray that by the Spirit, our heart can be soft to these words, that you will be willing to give up our so-called freedom in life to live in faith beneath Jesus' Lordship, that you may experience the true freedom of life beneath God Himself, just like He created us to live all the way back in Genesis 1, all made possible by Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. This is an introduction sermon. I hope you get the context of the Sermon on the Mount, but I pray that we be ready to hear this. Um, it, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a new guide on how to live life. It's a call to action. It's a call to carry out our Christianity. And you will see that the whole idea is to minimize you and to glorify God and to serve others at the expense of yourself. And so may that be what we are known of as Redeemer Point Pleasant. Let me pray. Jesus, um, thank you for this chance to do this, Lord. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you maybe are even working right now in our midst and to the hearts here. Um, would you forgive us of our sin? I pray right now as we go to communion, as Dan leads us, um, if, if, if repentance needs to happen, if there's a way in our life that we've been living, um, making our own decisions for our own self. And if we've done that, I'm sure that you have created problems. I'm sure that we have brought baggage along with those decisions. And if that is anybody in this room this morning, I, I pray this time as we go to remember your death, remember your blood shed for us, your body broken for us, that we could repent, that we could, we could confess that to you, to somebody next to us. The Holy Spirit, you could help us to reorient our heart towards you and not towards us. Lord, we're selfish people. We're so easily consumed with ourselves with what we think is right. And Lord, I, I am so wrapped up in this myself. Lord, none of us are outside of this. Please forgive us, Jesus. Please cleanse us, Lord. We need you. We need you to be our Lord and our King through all of our faults and all of our weaknesses and all the, the terror that our heart can, can surface inside of us, Lord. We need you so much. So Lord, I pray as, as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount in the oncoming weeks, 
that you would just show us what it means to live, Lord. Show us what it means to be your disciple. And Lord, align our motivations to be you and to be those around us and not ourselves. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. Amen. I'm going to take communion now and ask Dan to come lead us.